I just don't want to have a really big, loud, blown out audio like so many of the highlights I listened to this week. You know, it's hard to stay within proper volume limits when the excitement is so great. There's a lot of really important things happening at the end of games this week and every week, really. But man, a lot of close games down at the end, crazy finishes, lots of reasons to yell right into the microphone. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. That's this one. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week, all season, because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, this is opportunity number 336 for us. A lot of teams this weekend had an opportunity to make statements as conference races get open. A lot of big games in conferences. We're going to talk about a lot of them in the course of the next hour-ish. We sure are here, Season 17, Episode 10. This is where we talk about Week 5 of the Division Three football season, a week which wrapped up in September to remember. And yeah, that sounds like a car sale slogan, but it's also true. We had big games in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, a bunch of other places, and we will get to as many of them as possible. Up top, we will be talking about Trinity and Barry. Talk about up top. There was a lot of uh, stuff going up top in that game down in Mount Berry, Georgia. We'll talk about uh, Warburg and Co. We will talk with Andrew DiDonato, the head coach at Grove City. His team 5-0 and for the first time in nearly a century. And we'll talk about his team's win against Washington and Jefferson. We'll talk about the Little Brass Bell game and a bunch of other things that happened in Division Three football this week. But before we do that, we should take a moment to recognize and thank our sponsor of this week's edition of the podcast, and that is D3Photography.com. If you've listened to the last several weeks, you know that D3Photography.com is a syndicate, a bureau, a group of photographers that uh, we license their work and have over the course of the past decade plus. And uh, they are at Division Three sporting events all across the country. This past week, they were at these following games. And you can find photo galleries of these games at D3Photography.com. They were at Mount Union, Ohio Northern, UW-Whitewater, UW-Oshkosh, Randolph-Macon-Guilford, Hamlin-St. Olaf, River Falls-Platteville, and McAllister-St. Scholastica. Yeah, it's a little uh, Midwest heavy. I'm sure they probably would be looking for photographers in parts of the country that I didn't just mention. But nonetheless, that's still a pretty good group of photos. It was our first photographic look at uh, Mount Union this season, for example. Yeah, the people at d3photography.com, they do great work, Pat. We use their work on our website. You see it across uh, athletics websites across the country. I was looking through the photo album from McAllister St. Scholastica. Over 480 images from that game, Pat. So anything that you want to see that happened at McAllister and St. Scholastica, it's captured with a beautiful, crisp, still photograph. 
Uh, you have a student athlete who plays there, fan of the team, your alumni. Maybe you're a player and you want good action shots of you in the game for memorabilia purposes. DPPhotography.com has you covered. Pat, did you know that our listeners can use the promo code D3Football and get 10% off of their orders? Yeah, yeah, I did, actually. It's here in the bullets in our uh, rundown. But that's an important thing for folks to know. So use the coupon code D3Football. Go to D3Photography.com. And I don't know, if you had a way to do so, you could tell them we sent you. But that would be by using the coupon code. Thanks to D3Photography.com for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We start in Mount Berry, Georgia, with the game that I think enthralled a lot of people early on in the day, where Berry just looked unstoppable early before Trinity, Texas came back to win on the road 46-37. Man, Greg, Berry could do nothing wrong on offense in the first half. Blake Hembry, the quarterback, was swinging the football all over the place. Receivers were getting behind the Trinity secondary, and it was 29-13 Berry midway through the second quarter. So Trinity had still been moving the ball, but twice they had to settle for really short field goals, 19 yards and 21 yards. But Greg, I think this is key, right? Trinity scores before halftime to make it 29-20. Then they get a stop at the beginning of the third quarter, and they burn off most of that third quarter going 98 yards the other direction to cut that lead down to two. And from there, it seemed a little bit more like business as usual for Trinity. Yeah, really important for them to keep Barry's offense off of the field for a good chunk of that third quarter. But then at at that point, Pat, like you said, Trinity seems to have found their footing. They picked up kind of where they left off against Rhodes last week. Tucker Horn connects with Ryan Merrifield at the end of the third quarter for an 81-yard touchdown, and that gives Trinity their first lead of the game. Barry answered that with yet another long touchdown pass from Hembry to Kamari Smith. Those would be Barry's final points of the game, and Trinity controlled the final 14 minutes of the game. Trinity tied the score at 37-37 to with a huddle 52-yard field goal. The defense then forces Barry to go three and out, and then just three plays later after the punt, Legend Grigsby uses one of the dirtiest spin moves I've seen in a while to score on a 25-yard catch and run to give Trinity the lead for good. Barry did have one more chance late in the game. They forced Trinity to punt with just under two minutes to play. However, the punt pinned Barry's offense deep in their own end zone or near their own end zone in the end zone. Wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing for them. But uh, a holding penalty on the ensuing drive results in a Trinity safety and a nine-point lead, and that's the final margin of victory. Two things here. One I just wrote down in my notebook. It seems like at some point there might be a need for a supercut of the legend of Grigsby. Now we'll see if he lives, continues to live up to that, and if we have the uh, production time to make that happen. Secondly, I know there was a little bit of confusion, obviously, on the broadcast crew as to that call, but it is absolutely holding in the end zone. I know they said intentional grounding. That was not what happened. You need to watch what the official actually gestured. You can see what's in the stats. You know, as holdings go... Obviously, you could call holding pretty much all the time on just about everything, but this was an actual thing that you definitely would have thrown the flag on. Yeah, we went back and looked at that, Pat, and you rightly pointed out that hold happened clearly in the end zone right in front of the official who who saw it and really kind of had no choice but to drop the flag there. And as is often the case, a team that loses a competitive game to a highly ranked team actually moves up in our poll in this case. Barry lost six points overall, but others around them fell further, and Barry settled in at number 25. 
that game's coming down, and then we are zooming off to something else. What are we looking at? Yeah, Trinity started at 1 o'clock. That game finishes up. There's a huge window of great 2 o'clock games. One of them, Workbird Co. So at the end of Trinity Barry, you can flip over, tune in to watch the final quarter of Co. and Workbird, where Co. went into the fourth quarter leading 21 to 14. And this is the second time that we've seen Wartburg on the ropes at home in the fourth quarter. Uh, this is that's the second time we've seen that this season. And this is the second time that we've seen Wartburg find a way to get it done. Once again, the way they did that was a combination of a timely takeaway by the night defense and a whole lot of Hunter Clausen. Right at the end of the third quarter, Co gets a interception inside the Co 10 yard line to set up a short field for the Wartburg Knights. And it takes it takes four downs to get in on fourth and three. Hunter Clausen scores to tie the game early in the fourth quarter. Wartburg's defense really stiffens up in that fourth quarter. Co can't really get much going, but Hunter Clausen does get a lot going. Uh, they kind of ride him to another touchdown later in the fourth quarter to take the lead, twenty-seven to twenty-one. Uh, missed an extra point. Wartburg later had a short field goal opportunity that would have kind of put it away, but didn't make that field goal either. So kicking a little bit of an issue recently for Wartburg, but they do hang on to get the 27-21 win over Coe. Kind of a contrast in styles, right, for Wartburg. You mentioned, you know, and we mentioned this earlier in the season on this podcast, right? Think of the times where Wartburg last year just blew the doors off of everybody Nobody scored a touchdown on Wartburg before midnight for like the first however many weeks of the season. Been a little bit more of a challenge this season, but you know, that gloss is over the middle three weeks, right? They beat Monmouth 62-35 and they beat Coe 27-21. And in between, they outscored their opponents by a total of 126 to 2. Those two, as I recall, were a extra point block run back by Bethel in week two. So um, no, this is still, you know, this is a really good team. I think, you know, maybe the semifinal team, maybe you're looking at them score. Like they played a couple of close games with Monmouth and now co those are pretty good teams, but maybe not quite playing at the super dominant level we saw last year, but also very experienced team here. Um, now that they've been to the semifinals, maybe they're pacing themselves a little bit, really looking ahead to, November and December football don't want to necessarily say they're looking ahead that they're overlooking ARC competition, but recognizing that the the ultimate goal for the Knights is happening in weeks 14, 15 and 16. Yeah, that's definitely a place where a successful program can have a bit of a shift in mentality. We could have this whole conversation in a similar vein about the game between Mount Union and Ohio Northern from this week, a game which Mount Union led seven to nothing at the half and didn't score until a minute 22 left in the first half. We'll put a pin in that topic and come back to it. Another key game on Saturday, of course, was the battle in Western Pennsylvania. A bit of series of battles in Western Pennsylvania, a series of them for Grove City. Let's just go to Fast Five. See you all met. You all met. You all met. Now on Fast Five, Andrew DiDonato, head coach of Grove City College, is team 5-0 for the first time since 1926. Coach, congratulations. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be on. Appreciate being here. We did this on the website Saturday because you beat the presidents, and it's the first time since 1926. Who was president in 1926? Oh, my goodness. 
I don't know, which is awful. You know, I should always quiz the guys and film on random facts that they're going to get me for not knowing this one. The, uh, it's the first time since the Calvin Coolidge administration, which is not wow. a set of words I get to say very often. Yeah. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. One of the things I was most impressed about in watching some of the uh, key moments of your game from Saturday is just all of the empty tents. This is homecoming right on your campus, and usually yeah. it is really hard to drag those alumni out of those tents and actually come to the football game. Yeah, yeah. No, we have an amazing uh, alumni base, how they do homecoming at Grove City with the parade. My kids were actually in the parade, got to catch a little bit of that, and then just to see everybody from that in the tents pack our stands. I mean, there was the whole hillside was full. Uh, just a testament to everything everyone's done to make it a great atmosphere, and you know, certainly uh, two great football teams going at it uh, made for uh, just a, a great event for everybody there. The the state of the program when you took it over has to feel like ancient history at this point, right? Yeah, you know, we, we always do talk about, always tell the team three things at the end of every game. And first is always congratulations on winning a college football game because, you know, that first class I had, we went 0-10 in 2016 and then in 2017 ended that 33-game losing streak. So, does feel like a while ago but we always remind our guys in honor of that first group and all the bricks they laid that's the first thing we talk about after every game so you're five and oh you have beaten everybody who was expected to be a contender along with you guys for the pac crown and you've got five more games uh <laughs> to continue this out these guys have had to have been running at peak performance for the last three weeks maybe even the last you know of all the teams that you guys have played so far. So how do you keep them going to now finish this out now that they, you have done the big lifting so far? Yeah. When the schedule first came out, a lot of people talked about September and we, we used it in spring ball to keep our guys focused through that in the summer. But once we got to camp, I said, I, I don't want to hear about September anymore. And, and all the teams we got to play, we, we started saying good degree, grade each rep, one and oh each week. I mean, we have a, with each rep, a grading system we use and, so we just said good to grade each rep, 1-0 and each week. And you know, that really helped us get through September without getting overwhelmed with you know who we were playing and what was on the horizon. And uh, that's really the message now we have to continue because it's a unique situation. Like you said, not too many teams are heading into week six with five conference games already over and yet still right. five to go. So we have a long way to go in this 2023 journey, and we're just going to continue that same messaging of good to grade each rep, 1-0 and each week. Tell us a little bit about Logan Pfeiffer, your quarterback. Um, how has he progressed so far this season? What have you seen from him? You like? Yeah, I mean, we recruited Logan. I mean, his arm talent was obvious. You know, that's why right after we graduated Josh East, he won the job as a sophomore. And and you saw that yesterday. W and J, I mean, they're so good defensively. If you want to complete anything, if it's tight windows and some of the throws he made were phenomenal. As a junior, he's taken full control of our offense. I mean, getting us into the right situations, getting us into the right you know, whether it's protections or checks, things of that nature. So uh, his arm talent is evident for everybody, uh, you know, there who watches. But just as honestly, his understanding of our offense and how he's really taken control as the leader of the unit, that's been the most special thing to watch with Logan. And W&J just, you know, throws the ball all over the place. They only ran the ball 14 times on Saturday. Was that you taking stuff away from them? Is that them by design? How does that work out? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, we, we always want to stop the run first, and that's something we do. Anybody who plays against us knows that. And, and they were having success through the air. Obviously, they have a, a very talented quarterback, and, and he got into a rhythm. So I'm sure part of how we play defensively and the flow of the game trended more towards them continuing to put the ball in the air. And obviously, he threw 
had a really good game himself and threw for a lot of yards, but I think it was a mixture of both. One of the things that's always struck me about games in the PAC is that you guys have a ton of fans. Geneva has a bunch of fans. A bunch of other schools are drawn, you know, four or 5,000 on a regular basis. What's that like for you guys? It's special. I think it is the benefit of having a conference where almost every school we play is within a two-hour radius. So, you know, we play each other in everything, and it's it's pretty easy for fan bases to travel. So I think that's a big reason just geographically why we're able to get so many people there. But it's special. I mean, you think about small college football and, and guys – Getting to play in front of the environments that we've got to play in front of the last couple of weeks, is, it's just special, and it certainly adds to the overall experience for all of our guys. Okay, so the pack situation looks like this. Grove City, they have head-to-head wins now over Westminster, Case Western Reserve, Carnegie Mellon, and Washington and Jefferson. Five weeks left, they have sort of the, I think, where you would draw a line in half in the pack. They have all of the bottom half of the pack left to play. Grove City would have to lose twice now in order to not win the pack automatic bid. The pack isn't mathematically over yet, but it would take some really stunning results, uh, a pair of really stunning results to keep Grove City out of the out of the playoffs via the PAC automatic bid in 2023. One of the things that wasn't in the interview, but something that uh, talked with uh, Andrew DiDonato about afterwards was finding out that, sadly, there is no bronze statue of R.J. Bowers outside of Grove City's Robert E. Thorne Field that the players touch on the way in. I feel like that's something that needs to change, right? This is a guy who, for a long time, was the all-time leading rusher in college football history, had his cup of coffee tryout with the NFL. That's something that's got to happen. Somehow that's got to be made to happen. One thing that you did touch on in in Fast Five, Pat, is... Now Grove City has this five-week period between sort of this September gauntlet of teams. And I think W&J and Carnegie Mellon, I think, are playoff caliber teams. Maybe not quite the same with Westminster and Case Western Reserve, but good teams nonetheless. They're going to have five weeks now where they're not playing exactly the kinds of teams that they're going to play in Week 12. And... You know, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, I think, for Grove City to maintain that edge and maintain that level that they've been playing at through the first month of the season and be sharp at playoff time. Yeah, it's interesting, right? This is maybe just a representation of kind of the change of events in Western Pennsylvania just over the course of the last month or so. But now they end the season as they have for years and years and years with the Mercer County Cup against Teal, frankly. This is going to be the best Teal program in almost a generation, and that's not saying a lot, but that is something that, at the very least, even if they're not on the field going to provide a big challenge for Grove City, and they probably wouldn't even by the end of the season, you're still going to at least have that excitement. Something's going to get you that fire lit back under you for this game against your arch rival, and then, you know, very may well have a home playoff game in week 12 to look forward to assuming that Grove city does run the table and obviously so many other things that have to happen in the next six weeks, but Grove city, I think it would be in position to be a four seed at home in, you know, some sort of favorable first round position if they went out. Yeah. And I think that's really the carrot that 
keeps you striving to be excellent and as good as you can be, not just good enough to beat St. Vincent or Bethany or whoever, but to be excellent. Like there's, it's going to matter that they look very good every single week because where they place in those region two rankings is going to have a lot to do with their placement in, in the bracket and who they get paired with. And so a lot of incentive still to keep the pedal to the metal and be great every single snap so that they can get a favorable matchup and a home game. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball goes to UW lacrosse quarterback Kaiser Helterbrand. So we've talked about this guy before, right? He was, last year, half of the two-headed quarterback system for the Eagles. And right now, he's the big reason why UW lacrosse is still hanging in the top 25 at 3-1. and one. He threw for four of lacrosse's touchdowns on Saturday, and he ran for the other two as the Eagles held on to defeat UW Stout 45-40. So this is a game that was 45-20 to 20 with 10 minutes remaining. And lacrosse actually took Helterbrand out before Stout went on two scoring drives, then recovered the onside kick and scored a third time with 2.08 left. But Helterbrand came in, sealed the win with a 10-yard gain for a first down, and then allowing the Eagles to run out the clock. He finished with 297 passing yards and 128 yards on the ground. He threw three of his four touchdowns to Jack Studer, and lacrosse starts out Wyack play 1-0. Kaiser Helterbrand gets my game ball. Well, it's a good thing that there is not baseball substitution rules. You can bring bring your starter back in. That is true. We have lots of baseball references on this podcast, but that's the first one today. And actually one from Greg, which is not nearly as frequent as ones from me. Pat, my game ball goes to Christopher Newport, cornerback Josh Uvodich. Christopher Newport defeated Salisbury 24 to 14 on Saturday in a critical matchup in the NJAC. Uvodich had a hand in three captain's takeaways. Early in the first quarter, Uvodich broke up an option pitch, then recovered the fumble that he forced. In the fourth quarter, Uvodich intercepted Salisbury quarterbacks twice in the last five minutes, ending any chance Salisbury had to mount a late comeback. For his penchant for forcing turnovers and giving his team a significant leg up in the NJAC title race, Josh Uvodich gets my game ball. Penchant? Are we going full French in the pronunciation here? Was that not the theme? That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week comes from the Little Brass Bell game, where number one ranked North Central beat 10th ranked Wheaton 54-35 in a game that was not as close as its final score would suggest. Part of the reason why it wasn't close was that North Central rolled up 613 yards of total offense while snapping the ball just 51 times. That's an average of 12 yards per snap. 12 against a top 10 team. That includes the kneel down at the end of the game. That includes Luke Lanen going for 170 yards on the ground on 13 carries. If you took the sack yardage off of his rushing total, you know, like they do in the NFL, this would be 187 yards on 10 carries. This average includes Joe Sacco running for a 73-yard touchdown. It includes Charles Coleman, no relation, having one reception for 65 yards, plus his five carries for 60 yards and a touchdown. 60 yards on five carries is a great number, but for North Central on Saturday, it was the average. 12 yards per carry, 12 yards per snap. That's my stat. Bonus stat from the Little Brass Bell, Pat. All-American receiver D'Angelo Hardy 
did not touch the ball until the third quarter of the game, one reception for 48 yards. That was it for D'Angelo Hardy. North Central really had their way with Wheaton without really needing D'Angelo Hardy at all. Kind of frightening. Five for eight passing was all that uh, North Central needed to go for on Saturday. Randolph-Macon seems like the most under-the-radar top 10 team we've had in a while, and on Saturday, the Yellow Jackets rolled to a 70-14 win at Guilford. Randolph-Macon converted 12 of 14 third downs, which is an amazing stat, but it is not my stat. The Yellow Jackets scored 70 points in a game for the first time since Rocky IV was the number one movie in America, but that is also not my stat. With Saturday's offensive explosion, Randolph-Macon has now scored 50 points or more in four consecutive games for the first time since ever. The Yellow Jacket offense is historically efficient in 2023, Pat, and that is my stat of the week. I love a good Rocky Four reference, Greg, as you know, as listeners to this podcast know. So in addition to the Legend of Grigsby montage, now I need the Randolph-Macon training montage, right? May not be a better montage movie ever than Rocky Four. I feel like it puts the Taj in montage. All right, we go region by region as we spotlight more stories each week. And for region one, we ask, who's getting it done in the one? I'm a real wild one. And for me, it's Western Connecticut getting it done in the one. The Wolves, you may remember they're the Wolves now, not the Colonials. They defeated Mass Dartmouth handily on Saturday, handing them their first loss of the season by a score of 52-21. to That win came with a new starting quarterback in the helm in Keon Jones, but also Chad Blasky. Blasky, who was a 2022 D3Football.com second-team all-Region 1 running back for WestCon, has to be loving his fifth year, including Saturday, where he went off for 233 yards and two touchdowns on 30 carries. The Wolves got into the scoring column first when Aiden Figueroa blocked a punt and returned it 32 yards to get WestCon on the board. Mass Dartmouth quickly made a goal to go on its first possession as Dante Avila-Santos found Angel Sanchez deep down the left sideline for a 51-yard catch. But Mass Dartmouth was whistled for a false start and then a hold and ended up turning it over on downs at its own 12. Western went 88 yards the other way for a TD. They got the ball back after another failed fourth down and scored again, and it snowballed into 45-7 before wrapping up as a 52-21 final. Really big surprising result for the Mascac. Pat, for me in Region 1, Colby got it done, winning in the first of the three CBB games, played amongst the Nezcac's main with an E rivals. Colby managed just 10 first downs in the game, but still managed to put up 30 points in the 30-24 to win at Bates. Senior quarterback Thomas Keeling threw his first career touchdown pass, a 75-yard job to running back Keon Smart. Smart scored twice more on the ground, all part of a 255 all-purpose yard night for him. Colby now controls their own destiny, as it were, for the CBB. The final game in that series will see Colby host Bowden in the final week of the season. Greg, who's pulling through in the two? Portland pulled through in the two with a 52-15 win at Mooresville State in their Empire 8 conference opener. The Red Dragons, they've had two weeks to let that wild finish against Susquehanna simmer, and they looked ready to go. Zach Boys was outstanding in this one. He counted for six Cortland touchdowns, four through the air, two more on the ground. Boys and Ashton Capone both rushed for over 100 yards in the game. Cortland piled up 659 yards of total offense. 
And now the Empire 8's two playoff entrants from 2022 face off next week as Utica comes to Cortland. Also pulling through in the two, Dickinson College. The Red Devils had to go the length of the field. And I mean this basically literally. They started from their own two-yard line after a punt was downed there. Dickinson was trailing 17-13. to 13. Now, this is with 8.40 left, right? You hear about the two-minute offense, and if you pay attention, you hear coaches talk about the four-minute offense. Someone let me know if you've ever heard a coach talk about the eight-and-two-thirds-minute offense. The Red Devils used eight minutes and 36 of those seconds to get down to the FNM three-yard line. Think of how long FNM's defense has been on the field to this point, Greg. As Dickinson hands the ball off to Deontay Ball, he goes left, and they wrap him up. They bring him down short of the end zone, but there's a second left somehow, and Dickinson gets the timeout. This time, they show quarterback sneak, but they still toss the ball to Ball, who goes left, and, well, here's what it sounds like. Second and go. One second left. This is the last snap. Do they go with Deontay Ball? Do they air it out? That's the question. This might be the greatest Dickinson football game I've watched in my time here. Igbis. Igbis and this Red Devil offense. Let's see where they go with. They pack the middle. They might go with a sneak. No. Chipped it out. Deontay Ball. He's in the end zone. He's in the end zone. Red Devils win. Oh my goodness. They have done it. Red Devils win. 1917. History. I tell you, the Dickinson play-by-play makes it sound like this is a done deal, but Ball just barely reaches the ball out and gets it in the end zone. Final play, 1917 victory, and the Red Devils get the Conestoga Wagon Trophy back from FNM for the first time since 2019. I'm going to give some kudos here too, though, to the FNM sidelines, the FNM assistants, the coaches for keeping their guys in check because there are a couple of Dickinson players that came across the field We're crossing over into big-time taunting territory after that final score of the game. It was unnecessary, and it could have gotten ugly. Yeah, emotions run high there at the end of rivalry games. I've been at a couple of rivalry games, ended on the last player in the last few seconds of the game. Can get a little heated, uh, but congratulations to Dickinson. That's a a wagon walk-off, Pat. Pat, who's out to see in the three? I'd say Howard Payne is out to sea in the three. This is a team that certainly had its chance to make a statement about the state of the American Southwest Conference, but they let it slip away as Hardin-Simmons defeated the Yellow Jackets 40-33. So HPU scored with 8-13 left as Javian Miles broke away for a 36-yard touchdown run, cutting HSU's lead to 34-33. After sending the kicking team on to attempt a would-be game-tying PAT, Kevin Bachtel instead takes a timeout decides to go for two. They're trying to take advantage of a face mask penalty that had been called on the touchdown run that they could have assigned to the kickoff. Instead, they're going to take it right here on the extra point attempt. And even with the ball a yard and a half away from the end zone, Howard Payne can't convert. Landon McKinney's pass broken up by Jamarcus Wilson. And then you know how it goes. Harden Simmons held the ball for the next five minutes and 50 seconds. Colton Marshall runs for his third touchdown of the game to make it 40-33. Howard Payne gets the ball back at its own 39 with two minutes left, and McKinney throws an immediate pick to Demarcus Coleman deep downfield. Even that is not the end, Greg. Howard Payne uses its timeouts. It gets Harden-Simmons in a fourth-and-one situation, but then Harden-Simmons lines up 
as if to try to draw Howard Payne off sides, and it works. And that's the ball game. First down, Harden Simmons goes into victory formation from there, and Howard Payne starts off the ASC season 0-1. I don't know if Hampton Sydney is out to sea yet, but one thing that Tiger fans probably don't want to see anymore are opponent two-point conversions late in the game. Wabash used a late two-pointer to knock off Hampton Sydney in week one, and this week it was Odak rival Bridgewater dishing out some late-game drama at the expense of the homestanding Tigers. This game was a back-and-forth thriller with its climax at 23 seconds to play when Kennedy Fauntleroy capped an 88-yard drive with a one-yard touchdown run. That was his fourth of the day. With the score sitting at 38-37, to Bridgewater head coach Scott Lem kept the offense on the field to go for two because the people love it, Pat. And quarterback Malcolm Anderson powered his way into the end zone for two. This was a very close, uh, by the way, and the official looking down the goal line ruled that some part of the ball got, got to the goal line. The Eagles were awarded two points and the 39 to 38 win Fontelroy, by the way, 32 carries for 246 yards. And those four touchdowns career day for Fontelroy in the Bridgewater road win. Reminiscent of some of those great games in the past where the ODAC has essentially been decided by Hampton, Sydney and Bridgewater early on in the, in the conference slate. What's the score in the four pack? Well, the score in the four came in the battle for the oar as Capital beat Otterbein to end its 17-game losing skein. Skein? I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Losing streak. Anyway, they did it behind their number two quarterback as Donovan Duncan took over at the end of the first half after the starter went four for 14 with three picks. Duncan went on to complete eight of his 16 pass attempts, including a 42-yarder that Mike Elmore Sr. went up and grabbed at the eight with under a minute to go. After spiking the ball to stop the clock, Duncan connected with Elmore again, and here's what it sounded like. Yes, second and goal from the eight-yard line. The snap to Duncan. Duncan going for Elmore in the end zone. Does he have it? He got him! He got Elmore! Once again, he got Elmore! Touchdown, Comets! What a play from Duncan to Elmore! This morning, Donovan Duncan woke up as the backup quarterback of the Capitol Comets. And now, at 4.31 in the afternoon, he has just thrown the go-ahead touchdown pass to his senior wide receiver in Mike Elmore with 27 seconds to play. That is what the audio sounded like. Capitals' last win had come on October 23rd of 2021. Brian Foos, a graduate of Otterbein, is in his fourth year as head coach at Capital, and his team took home the oar for the first time since the trophy came back into play for these two Columbus, Ohio area rivals back in 2021. That indicates that the oar was out of play, and I want to know why. Pat, for me, 70 to 30 was the score where Alma celebrated homecoming with a huge win over Trine. The 70 points are the most Alma has scored in a game since 1951. And the program set a new single game high with eight turnovers forced. Yes, Alma was plus eight on turnover margin for the game, and that's a good recipe for winning. Head coach Jason Couch has it all working really well at Alma right now. So they did bring the battle for the ore back in 2021, as I mentioned. Of course, these two have been uh, rivals since the 1890s. They first met in football in 1894. The presentation of a trophy to the victors started in 1932. However, it got too intense 
Those are the best rivalries, right? Where it gets so intense that you can't play for a while. And when it finally resumed in 1948, this is heavy. There, an unfortunate accident in Alum Creek claimed the life of an Otterbein student. And since then, the rivalry became more civil. The rivalry became more civil, but they did bring this trophy back. And it's not just for the football game. It is in all sports that these schools compete against each other. And of course, they're in the Ohio Athletic Conference together. So they're quite a lot of them. And who is looking alive in the five? Mumbo number five. I'd say Augustana is looking alive in the five, Greg, as the Vikings improved to three and one on Saturday by beating Carroll 23 to 19. 23! So Augustana is trying to build off consecutive five and five seasons and move into the upper half of the CCIW, maybe even higher. And this weekend, they flipped one of their results from last year, taking a game which was a double overtime loss to Carroll in 2022 on the road and turning it into the win at home. Last year's game was so epic, we talked about it on Podcast 313. This year's game, pretty epic as well. Carroll led 10-0 in the second quarter and 19-10 in the fourth before Augustana started to answer. That included a 75-yard TD drive to make it 19-17. Then Nick Harper intercepted a Carroll pass at the goal line. Augie drove 98 yards the other way to go up 23-19. Carroll still had three minutes left to play with, however, and they got down to the Augustana 14, but they failed to convert all four times, with Johnny Breeden making an athletic pass breakup in the back left side of the end zone to finish it off. Carroll had four drives into Augustana territory come up empty on the afternoon. Of the teams ahead of them, Augustana has already played Wheaton and lost, but they still have Wash U and North Central to play. If Augie can win either of those games, it's more steps up the ladder for the Vikings. Pat Illinois College is very much alive in the five after the Blue Boys defeated Monmouth 20-17 in a Midwest Conference stunner. Illinois College limited Monmouth to just 248 yards of total offense, well below half of the Scots' average output this season. This is the first Illinois College win in the series since 2014. This result now leaves Lake Forest as the lone undefeated team in conference play. And get ready, Pat, because if Illinois College can win out and Monmouth bounces back to beat Lake Forest later this season, we might be counting quarters led again to decide an MWC champion. Who carries around quarters anymore? Two quarters in my pocket. Check it out. That's going to be a tall challenge for Monmouth indeed. Not only is the Lake Forest defense still outscoring opposing offenses, you know, from stat of the week a couple weeks ago, now the Foresters special teams are as well. Lake Forest beat Knox 50 to nothing, and the Foresters have Lawrence, Grinnell, Rippon, and Beloit the next four weeks before the regular season finishes at Monmouth and home to Chicago. Greg, who's in the mix in the six? Six feet, six, six feet, six feet, six, six feet. Carlton is 4-0 and in the mix in the Mayak after rallying from 14 points down with 11 minutes left on the road to defeat Concordia Moorhead 36-35. to Knights quarterback Jack Curtis's 77th and final pass on the day found Nathan Strife in the end zone with 20 seconds left to play to make the score 35-34 to in favor of the Cobbers. Carlton keeps the offense on the field, and I think you know why. Uh, you can understand why. But they go with their backup quarterback, Nick Toole, for the two-point play, and Toole finds Rice stores wide open on the wheel route for the conversion and the win. 
Curtis finished 44-77 on the day for 370 yards and five touchdowns. Strife caught 17 of those passes for 190 yards and three touchdowns, including the two final scores in the fourth quarter. 77 pass attempts, not your stat. I got to ask also, I just read this and I think backup quarterback takes the two-point conversion attempt. Did you watch this? Did they line up to go for two or was this an uh, instance of the holder being out there for that play? They did line up to go for two and it looked like the backup quarterback probably runs a, they've got a short yardage or two-point package for for that player. It was definitely planned. Jack Curtis was not hurt uh, or anything after the touchdown pass. I think that's just the package they run at the goal line. Greg, Trey Morris has to be in the mix in the six as well. He started the day as a backup quarterback for Lewis and Clark. And when he came into the game, his Pioneers team was down 28-10 to 10 in the fourth quarter. And all Morris did after that was go 17-21 to 21 passing for 185 yards and three touchdowns including the game winner in the second overtime. He replaced Cruz Montana, who was sacked twice and was relieved at the beginning of the fourth quarter. For Morris, easily the best game of his career, and really only the second time he's gotten any significant opportunities to throw the ball for Lewis and Clark. And he came in with his team down 18 in the fourth quarter and led them to victory, replacing a guy who has thrown 50 career touchdown passes for the Pioneers. And he's a quarterback named Montana. How can you not keep the guy named Montana out there at quarterback. This is why when you've got Trey Morris there to lead the way and lead them to a win in overtime. Greg, it was very nearly similar in Alpine, Texas, where Texas Lutheran scored 24 fourth quarter points to tie the game at Sol Ross State before Sol Ross kicked a 38-yard field goal in the closing seconds for a 37-34 win. I do understand that is not in the six. That was in the three it might be the last time we really mentioned Sol Ross State in the context of this podcast as they are already half a foot out the door on their way to NCAA Division II. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. All right, we threw out the bat signal. We threw it out twice, and I'm glad we put a retweet of it out there because the second time it elicited... This great question from Tim Schumacher, who is at TJSCHU83. And the question was, which unexpectedly close or late decided D3FB games in week five should be most least concerning? For example, UW Lacrosse versus UW Stout, Wartburg v. Coe, St. John's versus Augsburg, River Falls versus Platteville, Trinity versus Barry, Howard Payne versus Hardin Simmons. And I just threw in there Mount Union, Ohio Northern as well. This gives us a chance to talk about some things that were definitely on my mind. So I think for me, I think some of the the least concerning results probably involve Mount Union. Uh, Mount Union ONU, I know that was a 7-0 game at halftime. Um, I know there might be some hand-wringing about the Mount Union offense, uh, but that Mount Union defense has been as good as just about any Mount Union defense we've seen in a long time. They are very, very good. And I expect that the experience on that offense will show itself as the stakes get higher for Mount Union later in the season. If there's one here that is most concerning, I was going to say St. John's Augsburg. That's a question that I have in my mind. I had a little trouble with my top 25 ballot because I didn't feel like I could move St. John's down any further, but that's definitely a puzzling question. Obviously we know Augsburg 
has had some pretty good success so far this season, including that last second win at Gustavus and Augsburg's playing at home. I just, it, I have questions. I have questions. Yeah. I was looking at St. John's Augsburg as well. And I'm for balloting purposes. And I, I don't know what your ballot looks like, Pat, but on mine, uh, I'm, I'm honoring the St. John's Trinity result. And so St. John's is kind of buttressed by their overtime win against Trinity. It's bracketed coverage, really. And so un- until I'm ready to to break that head-to-head in my ballot, St. John's really kind of has a, a floor on how far they can go down. But increasingly, you have the lopsided loss to Whitewater for St. John's. They didn't really blow away Bethel. They didn't blow away Augsburg and starting to wonder, you know, maybe is St. John's less top six or seven ish and maybe more top 15 ish. Yeah. I have not anchored St. John's to Trinity in that manner. I think just the way that that game went and lots of other things around it. Plus again, it being a three point overtime win at home leads me to suggest that on a neutral field, that result might be reversed. I already have St. John's at eight. And that's behind John Carroll. So that's partially because John Carroll played Whitewater really well and St. John's did not play Whitewater nearly as well. I do know that there are home away differences in that game. But then beyond that, it's like next is Johns Hopkins. I can't see right now pushing St. John's below Johns Hopkins. Maybe other games over the course of the season will lead me to think differently. If we look at uh, River Falls versus Platteville, I don't know necessarily. I'm not concerned necessarily about that game. Platteville is still a quality program. I'd like to know a little bit more about lacrosse versus stout. Lacrosse is a team that we've had lots of questions about, you know, throughout the entire season. It has seemed like maybe lacrosse might be the fourth team out of that four. Although Oshkosh is currently ranked that way right now by virtue of having to play Whitewater first. Warburg versus Coe. I think Coe is a pretty good team. I'm not too necessarily concerned about that. Trinity and Barry, I kind of feel the same way, right? Uh, Barry was pretty good. We expected them to be pretty good, and it was a close game. I'd be concerned about play in the secondary and letting guys run free, but I'm not sure necessarily about specific performance overall in the game. And then Howard Payne versus Harden-Simmons, I'm actually not even concerned about that at all. Uh, I think Harden-Simmons coming up with that W without its starting quarterback is a good step forward for them and Harden-Simmons should be in decent shape to still be relevant when that game against Mary Harden-Baylor comes up several weeks from now. I'll just go back to Trinity and Barry really quickly. I think I learned a little bit more about Barry in that game than I did about Trinity. Barry is really, really good. They are super fast. They are super dynamic offensively. For them to sort of run around and through and past Trinity's defense the way that they did for a large chunk of that game, uh, tells me that Barry's pretty good, and Barry went on to my top 25 ballot this week as well. And then I think we learned a little bit about Trinity also because that thing was headed in way the wrong way early, and momentum really doesn't shift that dramatically in football games very often. And give a lot of credit to Trinity and their experience for not panicking and not letting that thing really get all the way away from them and coming back and getting a win. I'll leave it to the people who break down X's nose to tell us a little bit more about what happened for Trinity in the second half. But Tim, thanks for the question. Uh, You can do that. 
Send us questions, that is, by looking on X on Sunday afternoons when we throw out the signal. Looking ahead, Greg, to games to watch. My game this week is number 12, John Carroll at Marietta. Marietta, 3-1 and one so far this season. Only loss is to Mount Union. And until this week, you could maybe be excused for looking past the Pioneers a bit. The victories had come against St. John Fisher and Otterbein. So that changes a little bit, though, when Marietta does what it did on Saturday, which is to go out and win at Baldwin-Wallace on Baldwin-Wallace's homecoming and by a Monkey Stomp score of 42-21. Monkey Stomp, the official D3Boards.com definition for a 21-point victory. This home game for Marietta against John Carroll on the two-tone gray turf at Don Drum Stadium is looking like a much bigger challenge for John Carroll than it would have been seen as just two weeks ago. And Pat, my game this week is number 16 Ithaca at RPI. In the last couple of seasons, all of the higher stakes Liberty League games happened all at the end of the year. This season, the Liberty League is cutting right to the chase. Ithaca knocked off Hobart in the first of the first of their Hobart RPI union gauntlet in consecutive weeks. RPI has quietly put together a 4-0 start, and they've not been scored on in their last nine quarters of play. Road wins in the Liberty League are incredibly difficult to come by. Hobart, for example, has never, ever won at Ithaca, and Ithaca's defense of their Liberty League championship could well hinge on their ability to break through in Troy. We didn't mention number three, UW-Whitewater, and number 14, UW-Lacrosse. There will be so many great WIAC games this season, and I know I'm looking forward to other ones that I've circled on my calendar as well, but that's a big one to keep an eye on. Second-ranked Mountain Union goes to Heidelberg. Number 17, Cortland hosts Utica in the Cortica Jug game. You know, that's the game you get if you misspell Cortica Jug. UW Oshkosh goes to Stout. Union travels to Rochester. Christopher Newport goes to Dickinson. And a bunch of other games coming up in week six. Time for On the Spot. Well, this week's game, Greg, is called Of Mascots and Men. With all apologies to the women who play Division Three football, including the ones who we didn't find out about until after two years after they played. But what I'm looking for, Greg, this week is three games. You pick three games where the mascots would lose if they faced off head-to-head, but you flip the results when the football teams get on the field. So, for example, let's say that you felt really strongly that a swarm of Yellow Jackets would subdue some Quakers. That's great. You could say that, but then you would have to pick the Quakers, in this case, Guilford, to beat Randolph-Macon. Do we understand the uh, concept, the conceit of the game here? I do. All right. I need to find three such games? Three such games. Got it. You know, I would go with Colby and Bates, but they played that last week. Mm. Um, very, very creative write-up on that game from our friends at Colby, if you get a chance. Can't promise that that didn't inspire this particular on the spot. Got the game show music in my head as the site loads. Our new music from DJ Mentos used in this segment now. All right, Pat. I like normally in in the wild, in nature, I would like tigers to survive and win against yellow jackets however on the football field pat howard Payne, yellow jackets will beat east texas baptist tigers so that is one howard Payne over etbu 
HPU over ETBU. Got it. For a second, I thought we were skipping ahead to week 11 and getting us some randolph making hampton sydney action there. If you want to run it back in week 11, we can do it then, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that on the list for podcast 341 for consideration. Under normal circumstances, Pat, I strongly favor a team of warriors to outlast a school of muskies. However, this week... Lakeland over Wisconsin Lutheran. Lakeland over Wisconsin Lutheran. In my head, I was picturing some combination of Hendricks playing Muskingum. That would be an interesting Region 3 versus Region 4 crossover. Let's get uh, let's get ADs on the phone and make that happen. All right. And then finally, Pat, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay it off with Grove City here. It's their floor this week. In nature, Pat, I like a tornado, an act of nature to defeat a Wolverine. I don't think the Wolverine stands much chance against a significant weather event. However, Grove City Wolverines over Geneva this week to keep it rolling to 6-0 and for Grove City. Wolverines noted to be pretty darn vicious, but against a tornado, hard to imagine. You've got Grove City over Geneva. Excellent. We look forward to that. All right, Pat, and my game this week is going to be called I Hear You Knocking and You Can Come In. All right. (laughs) I want you to pick one team from the ORV category in this week's top 25 who is going to win in week six and get themselves into the top 25 next Sunday. Oh, very interesting. So that means that we have just a few teams that we can really consider, right? So I look at the teams that are within like one ballot position of getting into the top 25, and you've got UW Oshkosh, you've got DePauw, you've got Carnegie Mellon, and you've got Wash U. Wash U this week plays Illinois Wesleyan. I suspect Wash U favored handily against Illinois Wesleyan. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a win that's going to vault them into the poll. Carnegie Mellon is home to Teal. Uh, Again, that's a game that I would expect Carnegie Mellon to win, but I don't know if that gets them ranked. DePauw hosts Denison. Denison's decent. Denison lost to Wittenberg this week in overtime, so I'm going to put a pin in that one and think about that for a second. And then I'm going to look at... UW Oshkosh, which is playing Stout. UW Oshkosh, obviously, not very far from the top 25 in the first place. They are just five votes shy. Voters definitely like WIAC schools. That uh, is something that can't really be denied. I have to think about, too, is anybody even going to drop out, right? So I know I'm uh, kind of breaking the conceit of the game by thinking about this. Um, Barry's not going to lose at Southwestern. I don't believe uh, Delaware Valley is not going to lose at Alvernia. Grove City is not going to lose to Geneva. Let's look at Mary Harden Baylor. In addition, Mary Harden Baylor is at Texas Lutheran. This might be a moot point, but I think of the teams that are here, the one that has the chance most likely to do so is UW Oshkosh against Stout. So I guess that's the one I'm going with. Keep knocking and we'll see if the voters let you in back in. 
it sounds good. And I think there is some part of this where you do need some help. I think it's difficult to get into the top 25 without somebody dropping out. Of course, that's always the question when we're asked, why isn't my team in the top 25? Who do you take out to make room for your team? Not as easy as it sounds. Well, I keep hearing from people who say Mary Harden Baylor shouldn't be in the top 25. There's an incredulous tweet right now on Twitter that says one in three UMHB is ranked for what reason? I'm like asked and answered two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and four weeks ago, my man. We are not going back down this rabbit hole. Although I bet if you posted a comment on the top 25 page on d3football.com, you might be able to entice Keith McMillan to come out and answer it. All right, so last week in a game called CCIW, I asked Greg to pick which games in the College Conference of Illinois and Wisconsin this past weekend would finish with one team doubling or higher the other on the scoreboard. This turned out to be a challenge. Greg picked Illinois Wesleyan to double up Milliken, picking correctly in a game between two struggling programs, but one which, nonetheless, IWU won 45-17. He said that Wash U would double North Park, and they did, with a few to spare, winning 41 to 7. Greg also picked Carthage and Carthage defeated Elmhurst, but only by a 27 to 20 score. Still, as they say, two out of three ain't bad. No big improvements from Elmhurst this year. Really impressed with what they're doing uh, with the first year or new, not a first year coach, a very veteran head coach, but a new head coach there in his first year. Last week, I asked Pat to pick a team that had lost by a significant margin the week before that would then have the largest point differential swing in week five if you're following all that that team didn't necessarily need to win pat picked muskingum who was minus 67 to mount union in week four to be that team muskingum did play well in a 20 to 17 loss to heidelberg changing their differential by 64 points which is very good however of the teams that pat had to choose from it was the simpson storm who turned a 63 point loss in week four around into a 55 to 28 win over Buena Vista. And that is a 90 point swing for Simpson. And that was the largest point differential swing of the week. I should have known that the Simpson storm going to Buena Vista would have success in storm Lake, Iowa. Taking a look at quick hits. You know, when we look at upset watch from last week, we don't get points for anybody. Our panel had pointed to river falls. They pointed to lacrosse, Harden Simmons, Muhlenberg, and for some reason, North Central as potential targets for upsets. All of them won. In fact, no upsets in the top 25 this week. For our surprising 5-0 and teams, Union Albion, Susquehanna, and Utica all made it to 5-0. and So points for Greg, Pat, Frank, Logan, and Riley. Pat, I'm going to go into the eight-minute offense here. I asked the panel to find the team currently giving up less than 200 yards who would give up more yards above or below their average for the season. Wheaton, despite the lopsided score in the Little Brass Bell game, they did accumulate 425 yards of offense. That's a full 285 yards more than North Central's per game average. Points to Frank and Riley for getting that one right. And finally, I asked the panel to pick an 0-4 team that would close the first half of the season out with a win. I picked Southern Virginia, who beat LaGrange. Pat picked Kenyon, who handled Hiram. Ryan Tips picked Capital, who got the win and the oar. Frank and Logan picked Wilkes to get in the win column against Juniata, which they very much did. And Riley picked Wisconsin Lutheran, who rolled to a 52-20 to win over Rockford. 
clean sweep for the panel on that one. I think if we had a bonus point to give out, I would give it to Ryan Tips. Not only did he pick an 0-4 team, but he picked an 0-17 team to go on and win that game. And this was the Around the Nation podcast number 336, released on October 2nd, 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for continuing coverage all week, all season. We are very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. You can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. If you can't afford to support us financially, that's all right. You can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about this show, tell the people at your tailgate, tell the people in your parents' group. Also, you can give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined because that helps other people find the show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I tweet from at D3Football on X. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. You can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Andrew T. Donato for joining us. Thanks to Grove City Sports Information Director Ryan Briggs. Thanks to Keith McMillan. He was the OG host and the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. And thanks to Greg Thomas, our columnist, our co-host, our on-the-spot spotter, our stat of the week statter. Those things and many more. Big week in Around the Nation. Big, big week. Is it where we get in the thing? Is the thing coming? The thing is the thing is coming. It's gonna happen. Oh yeah, this is gonna be good. Thursday. I hope this is in the outro. It's like the stinger teasing the next big thing. That's right. At the end of the Marvel movie. More more pop culture references that you don't get. I don't get a ton of Marvel references. I do understand there's post credit scenes though. That's right. A certain set of of orderings that people uh, are always eager to see and look at. That's what's coming this week find Greg's updated conference rankings coming up this week. I will start collecting photos now. I know a really good place to get great photos. We shall see. I think it's be interesting at the top. But but Wyack number one, right? Most definitely. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs> <laughs>